We have been having all kinds of fun with our technology lately, so it is not any person's fault. It is equipment's fault, and, and that is fun. Um, uh, just real quick, a, a brief update for those of you who have been praying for me. I appreciate it. Uh, I did go in for my bone scan uh, last week, and everything came back normal, um, which seems to indicate that uh, there's no bone disease um, but the doctors are perplexed with, the, with their words. There's still some, something on my neck that they're going to do an MRI now. So another fun test, um, and uh, that's in November 7th, I believe, so you can keep praying. Um, they asked if I wanted to be sedated. I, I said, I, I don't know. I don't think so. But, uh, you know, those things, can, they asked if I was claustrophobic. That's why. But, uh, so anyway, I'm going to take this off because I don't need it, and it's going to annoy me. These first world problems. Good deal. And I'm going to trip over stuff. I am just losing myself up here this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 11 and 12. Um, I want to put some context to chapter 12 verses 1 through 12, which really the, the whole passage does fit together well. Uh, if you remember, uh, last week we talked about the, uh, the lesson from the withered fig tree where the, uh, Jesus curses the fig tree, it withers and dies, the disciples are amazed at it, and they say, uh, look Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, here's the root lesson, here's the important lesson, I hope you uh, take to heart that lesson from last week, and the lesson is this, have faith in God. Have a life that is dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately uh, what every message should be about anyway. Um, but as Jesus has gone through the temple, if you remember, we, we talked a little bit about this last week. Jesus went into the temple and he tossed out, uh, flipped over all the tables and he cleaned house uh, of the temple. And uh, the Pharisees were asking, uh, whose authority do you have to do this? Uh, where, where do you get this kind of authority that you can come and, and do these things? And, and as Jesus has taken authority and displayed it in the temple, remember he came in on a, uh, a cult we talked about a few weeks ago on the triumphal entry. He comes in and um, the people are shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, Hosanna. And, and the, the religious leaders are watching it. Luke tells us that they, they saw it and they, they rebuked the disciples and those there and said, Jesus, tell them to stop. They're, they're, they're speaking blasphemy. And Jesus says, if they are silent, the very stones will cry out. So Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem, and, he, and we talked about the emptiness of the religious system that was Jerusalem and the temple at that time, and Jesus walks in, and he cleans house, and they come to Jesus, and, and, and this is really where Mark eleven twenty seven starts. They, they uh, have approached Jesus as he comes back into the temple, and they say, by what authority? Who gives you the right to do these things? What, what makes you think that you can do this? And so Jesus then knows that they know the answer. So he's going to turn it on them. And as he so frequently does, he answers their question with a question. He says, and uh, John, you know that guy John the Baptist that was beheaded that you guys didn't like? Where did his authority come from? Where did his message come from? 
And then you have this little dialogue in those Pharisees and scribes as they kind of contemplate this, trying to plot how they've been plotting how to destroy Jesus from, from way back in Mark chapter 3. And they're being very careful on how they answer. And so they, they get this little discussion going on. If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, uh, the people are going to be in an outrage. And so they're, they're doing the typical political system here. And so they say, we don't know. But Jesus knows they're lying. That's the reality here is Jesus knows that they are lying. He knows that they know. They have always known. And as Jesus uh, addresses, he says, fine, if you're going to, this is the Nate paraphrase, if you're going to lie about it and say you don't know, I'm not telling you. Because you already know where my authority comes from. This is the heart issue of what we're going to look at today is, is uh, uh, Jesus dealing with some, some hard hearts that essentially are in power that don't want to give up power. And hopefully as we walk through this, and I had a, I had a really struggle this week as I was trying to figure out, okay, I mean this is a very, uh, Mark chapter 12 verses 1 through 12 is a very direct a uh, uh, parable to specific people. It is for the religious leaders in the temple. And so how do you transition that to us? Because I don't see any religious leaders of the temple sitting in here. But there's still application for us. And I think as we walk through this, we'll see it. And I think it's important for us to understand that as Jesus is addressing them, he doesn't hate them. He doesn't hate them. He loves them. In fact, Jesus probably knows that in that crowd of chief priests and, and scribes that, that there is a man named Nicodemus who has already come to him once in the middle of the night. And, 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 and further proof that they know that, that Jesus is, is a man from God. Nicodemus comes to him in John chapter 3 and he says, Good teacher, we know that you are sent from God for no other man can do this. This is the, the, the voice of the, the chief priests and, and, and the scribes. And, and so another man that was probably in that crowd was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Possibly even Paul, at that time known as Saul. And so Jesus is going to address them with this parable. And it is a very direct and pointed parable. And I think it's important for us to understand he is doing it because he is, first of all, appealing to their conscience. He is appealing to their conscience. And he's giving them a very stern and solemn warning. And guess what? He does the same for us. So, with that context, we jump into this parable. It says in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and, were in, and went into another country. Uh, Jesus speaks in parables all the time. And Ultimately, one of the main reasons Jesus speaks in parables is to illustrate something. That's why it's important that when you are teaching, you have good stories that can connect people, that they can visually see and recognize a, a truth. And the reality is this parable would have been very, very familiar to the religious leaders. It was real life. The account of the parable was normal life for the Jewish community. They, they had seen maybe neighbors, especially wealthy neighbors, who would have 
done this very thing. They would have built a vineyard. They would have dug a wine press in it. They would have built a, a tower. It's not necessarily a watchtower for guarding, but a storage tower. And they would, have, uh, they would have done these very things. And then a wealthy landowner would have went away to another country and rented the place out for somebody else to take care of. So this is, this is all too familiar it was something that they would have been very familiar with, that any uh, Jewish person in this culture would have seen it and been like, yeah, yeah, I can recognize that story. That sounds very familiar. It sounds exactly like what uh, uh, Joe over here did. You know, it's very familiar. But not just real life, it was recognizable for the religious leaders. Because if you start to look through scriptures, you will find that over and over again, the nation of Israel has been referenced as a vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, this is uh, most likely where Jesus is connecting it with them. So these religious leaders have studied the scriptures. They know what the Old Testament says. They, they can associate with it. So when Jesus says, hey, a man planted a vineyard, this is a parable. This is a story I want you to relate to. Their mind might have very quickly gone back to Isaiah chapter 5. It says in Isaiah chapter 5, starting at verse 1, the Lord speaks and he says, Let me sing for my beloved, for my song concerning his vineyard. He's speaking of the nation of Israel. He says, My beloved had a vineyard, and on a very fertile hill he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat. Is it sounding familiar? He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. This is God speaking of his nation of Israel. And then notice what happens. It takes a turn. He says, But it yielded wild grapes. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah. So now he's actually told the story, he's laid it out, and he's actually going to tell us the meaning of this story. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you, literally says it, what I will do to my vineyard, I will remove its hedges, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. It, I will also command the clouds that no rain may rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, and his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the father says, I planted a vineyard. I dug uh, the wine press, and I built it up, and, and it, was, uh, it produced wild grapes. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. And Jehovah says, that vineyard is my nation of Israel. My chosen people that I've called out from the world and I've set them there and I've, I've raised them up. There are lots of illustrations of that. The, the leaders, you cannot miss this. These scribes and chief priests knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew exactly. There was no doubt in their mind that they had the connection. In fact, in verse 12 of this very passage, it tells us that they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They knew what was going on. They knew that he was in authority. They knew that he was the Son of God. They knew, they knew, they knew, and yet they continued. 
And this is so important to understand. That this parable would not have slipped their mind. They understood full well what he was talking about. So let's walk through the story and kind of look at the the actual parable, the purpose of it. Uh, Starting in verse 3, it says, uh, 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 I'm sorry, in verse 2, When the season came, he sent a servant to, to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Okay, I want you to understand that there's a transition. So Isaiah 5 is a story about a vineyard and the vineyard being the nation of Israel. There is no doubt that the vineyard here is still the nation of Israel, but the point of the parable is about the tenants now. Okay? And I know this might sound a little classroomish, but it's important for us to connect all the dots. So Jesus is not talking about the, this isn't a, a, a condemnation or a judgment on the actual vineyard, but on the tenants. So those are the important figures of the story. So it tells us that the, the natural thing was that when the season came, He's going to send his servants to go collect. That's, that's very natural. That's what he does. He goes away. He, he rents out the land. The tenants take care of it. They, they raise up the grapes. And so the, the, the owner of the vineyard says, hey, it's my time. It's the season. I'm going to send in my, my servant. He's going to collect. And, and he probably thought nothing of it. It's just a natural request. But then notice what happens. So he sends the servant. And what do they do? They took him and beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. Three things. They took him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. This is a very shameful response. In a culture where honor is valued and esteemed very, very much. In fact, we're told in uh, 1 Chronicles 19 that David, as king, uh, hears of the death of a a neighboring king. So what does he do? He sends some of his uh, messengers, some of his men, to go send his... His, his, essentially his uh, condolences. And the king hears from some bad advisors that David is spying out the land. You should take these guys and, and shave their beards. It's kind of a weird thing. Shave their beards and cut the back of their gowns and send them away. And this is, in fact, in First in Chronicles 19, it says that the, David is angered by this, and the king hears about it, the, the neighboring king, and it says that he recognized that he had become a stench in the nose of David. Honor in this culture is esteemed and, and highly regarded, so when somebody sends a representative to the, the tenants to say, hey, this is my land. I'm just doing the natural thing. I want to collect a little bit of, of the harvest. He wasn't asking for all of it. He wasn't demanding anything. He just sent a servant, and what do they do? They abused him. They rejected him. And the rejection of the servant, get this, understand this, the rejection of the servant was to reject the very master. Jesus says this, that anyone who would reject me rejects the one who sent me. Over and over again, we see this, the same concept. Honor is is an important thing. And they abused him and they sent him away without any of the masters due. Okay? That's the first sermon. Now, what would the master do at that point? The natural thing, right? Send another servant. They rejected the first one. Maybe they'll respect the second one. So it tells us, and he sent uh, another one. 
And they struck him on the head. So each time it is getting progressively more violent and more shameful. It says they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And so what does he do? He sends another. And him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. What a story. Does it sound familiar? Because to the religious leaders, it would have started connecting. Because it is a parable of what the religious leaders of the nation of Israel has done. Each time it grows more violent. How many times, brothers and sisters, this is a moment to pause and be encouraged. How many times does he send and send and send and send and not give up? Man, I, I think about, you know, we went to this men's retreat and, and I'm feeling a little beat up from just all the sin in my life and the things that I've done. I didn't even want to get up this morning to preach because I've just been wrestling with some things and, and recognizing things and I hate it about myself and, and I'm walking through these things. And, and as we walk through this text, the thing that we need to remember is He sends and He sends and His mercy and His grace never He had every right as a master of this vineyard to, uh, especially even just at the first one when they they took him and beat him and cast him away and sent him home empty-handed. He had every authority, protection by the land, to raise up an army and go and slaughter those tenants, but he doesn't. Instead, he sends another. And they progressively get worse in violence and in in their treatment of him and the shame of it. And we knew that the leaders knew what he was speaking about. Many prophets, does it sound familiar? Many prophets did God send to the nation of Israel. And many prophets were told over and over again, went and proclaimed the truth. And we can read throughout the Old Testament of different messengers sent and beaten and even killed. That, that Jeremiah was sawed in two. That Isaiah went and was treated with uh, 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 great disrespect. And, and, and we can read in Hebrews 11 of all these men who were messengers of the truth that came to the nation of Israel who had great faith and some were sawn in two and some were stoned and some were killed and and it sounds very familiar to this very passage this very parable that Jesus is sharing and how many times the Lord give mercy and grace instead of righteous retribution and by the way the leaders knew what he was talking about. Like I said, Nicodemus, John 3, 2, we know you are a man sent from God. And yet in all of this, as Jesus is appealing to their hearts and he's saying, guys, you know the history of Israel. This has happened. This is the reality. This is what's going on. In all of that, the recognition and the reality of, of seeing that Jesus, I mean, how can you not hear and visibly, they, they would see the miraculous things. I mean, you, when I read through the New Testament and some of the stories of Jesus, I am amazed that, that the, the the response of these Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and these teachers of the law that, that they would see a man healed in the synagogue, his hand healed. And what do they do? Instead of rejoicing that a man is healed, they're angered. And then Lazarus is raised from the dead. And you know what it says? That they plotted to kill him again. How do you get to a place where you are angry when good happens? One reason. They didn't want to concede their power. This is the ultimate truth of our lives. Jesus comes to claim his right. 
And often there is a fight over control in our very own lives. There's a fight. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about, that when Jesus says, hey, that's an area of your life I would like control over. And we're like, ah, yeah, you know, I kind of like that part. I'm not sure I want to yield that. Jesus comes and he's tapping on your, on your heart and he says, yeah, I need that. And over and over again he sends and he's, he's coming to claim his right and yet we hold on. Thankfully, he never grows weary but rather keeps sending. And I look forward to the day that as I grow more spiritually, by the way, the more I yield things to the Lord. John the Baptist recognized this. He said that he, meaning Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. That's the reality of our lives, that we are to yield to his control. There is an incredible response now in this passage that you cannot miss. So he's sent servant after servant after servant, and they are beaten. They are, some are killed. Some are treated just shamefully, and they are all sent away empty-handed. They are ultimately all a rejection of the master of the, the vineyard. And so what does the master of the vineyard do? I mean, we've been talking about his endless mercy, that he keeps sending many, many, many. And we get to verse 6, and it says, He still had one other. He still had one other. Well, who is that one other? It tells us a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do do you think this could be a little bit more pointed Jesus has been claiming that he is the son of God that he has come sent from the father he has preached it from the synagogues from the temples he has preached it everywhere he goes he has said I am come to do my father's will I am come sent by my father they knew exactly what this message was and the message can you imagine first of all what is going on in the mind of the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, and in the mind of Jesus as he tells them in, in, in Nate's words, he looks them in the eyes and says, I have come to claim my right, and you are looking at me as the son and saying, if we kill you, because he knew that they were plotting to kill him, and if, you, uh, if we kill him, we can stay in power. We know this is their mindset because later on in the book of Acts, the, 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 the uh, religious leaders gathered together and said, remember that guy who came as a, a rebellious leader to try and stir up a revolt? He disappeared and the rebellion ended. And now if we do the same with the followers of Jesus, you know, Jesus has died and he is gone. So in a little bit, his, his followers are going to just vanish and we will stay in power. Jesus looks at them and declares, I am the Son of God, beloved of the fathers. Come to collect. Can you imagine that scene? He sent me to you, and you are going to kill me just like the story. And you think that by eliminating me, you will remain in power. 
This story has an incredible response. The reality is it's very true that, that the Father has every right when He looks at, at us as humanity who have violated his, his law, who have, who have lived in sin, who have decided that we have forgotten that we are renters and thought we are now the owners of this life. And he sends, and he sends, and he sends, and finally, the story is the great message of the gospel, that instead of sending an army to go destroy these men, he sends his unarmed son. And he says they will respect him. And instead, they kill him, and they throw him out. This is the world's thought process. If we can just eliminate God, we stay in power. Man, isn't that the natural theory of evolution? That if we can eliminate a higher power and we are in control and we determine what is morality and we determine what is, and we remain in control. It is the heartbeat of humanity that if we can eliminate God, we remain in power. And so Jesus asked the question to them, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And ultimately, brothers and sisters, this goes right back to the question that they had asked, which is, by what authority are you doing these things? God the Father who planted the vineyard, the nation of Israel, had every right to it, and these leaders were not following, uh, the, 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 they, were not, they had forgotten that they were renters and had tried to take ownership and pretty soon they were going to kill uh, uh, the son and so can you imagine the forethought that Jesus is kind of putting in their hearts and minds uh, when you kill me what do you think the father is going to do and in Luke we're told that the crowd answers here we're told that uh, uh, Jesus doesn't wait for an answer, and it says that, uh, uh, it says, uh, verse 10, have, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And again, in Luke, it tells us that the response of the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew exactly what he was saying. You know why? Because in Luke, we're told that they said to this response, that he would give the vineyard to others, they say, surely not. How foolish. No, no, no. You're wrong, God. You're wrong, Jesus. They're not going to, he's not going to take this from us. We are in charge. And we look at that and we say, how foolish. And yet in our own lives, we say to God all the time, no, 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 no. I am in charge. Surely not you're going to take that from me. And Jesus transitions and he says to them, have you not read this scripture? There is something going on behind the scenes here that if you don't study it, you can miss it. It's really incredible. So if you remember the triumphal entry, Jesus comes marching in this incredible scene. Uh, and, and the people started shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're actually quoting from Psalm 118. Read it. It's great. Uh, it's the song of ascent. It's the song that was written for the incoming king. Who shall come in through these gates of glory? Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. And they're quoting it. They're shouting it because they believe that the Messiah, the new king, is coming into the city. 
They have a wrong concept, but they're quoting this incredible psalm and they're singing it. And guess what Jesus does here? Two days later, he quotes from Psalm 118. Because remember, they were shouting this and the Pharisees, the the scribes, they're standing there and saying, Jesus, tell your disciples to stop. They're speaking blasphemy. Jesus says, no, no, no. If I tell them to stop, the very stones will cry out. And guess what? The stone is crying out now. Because he says, to quote Psalm 118, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The rest of the story is this, that they, the builders, the keepers of God's holy people are rejecting the stone that has come, the cornerstone. He has become the most important stone, and on him all would be built. Peter recognizes this, and he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, As you come to him, meaning Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul later on would also write in Ephesians chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Everything rests on him. We had that passage from Colossians chapter 1 read first this morning, and and it is such an incredible passage when we consider it, that that he is preeminent, he is uh, uh, the the most important, that all things are, are, as we're told in Romans 11, all things are for him, through him, and to him. He is preeminent, that that he is the chief and the most important. In fact, in in, uh, Luke's account, it tells us that Jesus not only says that he is the cornerstone, but he, he, he then goes on to say that if anyone would fall upon this stone, he will be broken. And that's the reality of hard-heartedness, that when we come to Jesus the Messiah, we recognize Him, and and we we see Him at face value, and when we fall upon Him, we have our hearts broken and transformed. But He goes on to say, and those who do not, He is also the stumbling stone, that when He falls upon them, they will be crushed. Break or be broken. He closes this quote by saying that this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has just shared the gospel with Pharisees. He said, I am come to be rejected by you and the very rejection of me is salvation for all. And it is the Lord's doing. They thought they had killed Jesus, but it was always the Father's doing. In Isaiah, we're told that it it pleased him to harm him. 
to injure him. Why? Because through his suffering, righteousness is made new. And it was the Lord's doing and what? It is marvelous in our eyes. Brothers and sisters, the gospel should be marvelous in our eyes. It should be amazing. It should be something that we see and recognize and are enamored with and overwhelmed with and amazed at. Jesus is quoting to them what was being fulfilled at that very moment, that he was the stone come to the builders, the very most important stone. There is a, a, a tradition that says that when Solomon built the temple, that if you read in, in the scriptures, you'll find that the, all the stones were built off, or chiseled off-site so that there would be no sound uh, of chisels or hammers on the, the very site of where the temple was being built. And they brought in these cut pre-cut stones and put them together like a jigsaw puzzle and and the tradition is that when they got them all there that there was one stone that they couldn't figure out where it fit and it turned out to be the cornerstone the most important stone that is the foundation in the center I don't know if it's true but it sounds good and and it was the stone that that the reality is that the cornerstone is the stone that lines up everything else it is the most important one and that is the fact of Jesus that, that what is addressed here is that religion is not what Christianity is built upon. But it is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ that, that we, can, we can look to Jesus and that is what we need. We don't need tithes and offerings. We don't need various services and sacrifices. We need Jesus. Those things are important and I would never throw them out. But we need to understand that the most important thing is Jesus. That he is the foundation and the cornerstone of faith. He is the anchor for our soul, we're told in Hebrews. And your life is built on the cornerstone, not your work. And that's what these guys thought. And by the way, all of this is marvelous. The moment we stop marveling at the gospel is a moment we need to get back to the root of the gospel. The moment that it stops being amazing and captivating us is a moment when we need to fall back at the foot of the cross. It is not about religion, but about a relationship with the chief cornerstone. It says that they were seeking to arrest him after this, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. That is a sad, sad commentary. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming and he is plotting and he is, he is prodding at your heart. He is prodding at the hearts of your family, of your neighbors, of your co-workers. He is prodding to try and, and, and come in and have relationship with them. And I hope and pray that the testimony is that they that it is not that they walked away. They left him. So what is the application of all this? How do we take this and apply it to our lives? I think the first and foremost thing is to understand and to remember that the gospel is amazing. Consider the nature of this gospel. He sends and he sends and he sends and then he sends his son. 
The, the story of redemption isn't started in Matthew. It is started in Genesis where God promises to send a seed of the woman that would come and bring redemption to all of mankind after Adam and Eve had sinned and fallen short of God's glory and then passed that on through humanity. And there are prophets that would come and speak truth of that matter and they would prophesy and they would tell of those things and they were rejected and they were turned away and they were beaten and so Some were killed, and Jesus now comes, and he is the chief cornerstone. He is the son being sent, and they kill him, and it is by far the most important moment of human history. And it was all the Lord's doing, and it is amazing. You know why it's amazing? Because if we come to Christ, he holds nothing against you. probably going to get mocked for this, but uh, we had a debate at men's retreat. I'm getting a no, don't do it. So there's this, this rapper guy, I don't know much about him, his name's Kanye West. I don't know much about him, but if he had a really bad life and he has come to Christ, his past don't matter. His past doesn't matter if he's come to Christ. Amen. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is the glorious nature and the amazing nature of the gospel. This guy could be filthy, immoral, and leading people down a road, a highway to hell. And if the Lord spoke to his heart... And he is transformed. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what your past is. It matters what your present is. And the present is in Christ, forever forgiven and cleansed of sin. The very thing that they couldn't stand was Jesus, and he was the very thing that they needed so desperately. And so many of us, the very thing we need, and I'm not just talking about in salvation, I am talking about a relationship with him. Maybe we have come to Christ, and yet He is cling, we are clinging to bits and pieces of our life, and the very things that we hold on to are the things that he wants us to give up because he wants to replace those things with himself. And the very thing that we need, the epicenter, is him. And that is amazing. And what it comes down to is this, who will have power in your life? The son comes, will you yield to him or fight to control the vineyard? You cannot subvert, replace, or remove the role of the son in your walk of faith. We shared, uh, again, at Men's Retreat about the importance of the priority of prayer. And, and one of the things that we hammer home is this. If prayer is communication with Jesus, if prayer is communication with the Father, you cannot expect your faith to grow if you are not in relationship through prayer. One thing I shared with the men was that, that salvation is not dependent upon prayer. Understand that salvation is not dependent upon prayer, but your growth of your faith is absolutely dependent upon prayer. 
And if you are not praying, if you are not spending time in communication and relationship with the Father, John 15, 6 tells us very clearly that apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is coming, and He has come into your life if you have accepted a relationship with Him, and He is saying, would you abide with me? Would you have a relationship with me? And if we are sitting here saying, no, 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 I am still the rent, I am still the, the tenant, and I am in control, and I will not yield to Him, then we are going to be walking a dangerous road. But here's the beauty again. Even if you're doing that, The gospel is amazing because he will send his messengers again and again and he will send his son to die for you. And your present is defined by the sacrifice of the cross, not your past. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that has not received that gospel truth, that has not believed that Jesus alone is our hope of salvation. If there's anyone here today that thinks that the, 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 the things that they do are what earn them favor with God. Father, I pray that you would silence those lies and that you would remind them that it is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, that all things are built upon, that in Him all things hold together. And Father, I pray for us as as your sons and daughters that we would be reminded of the truth that you have come to ask for our hearts and minds. And Father, may we yield to you and find great freedom and joy in the fact that we are yours. And Father, would you remind us of the amazing nature of your gospel, that it is marvelous that it was the Lord's doing to send your Son into a world filled with darkness, filled with sin. And you chose to die upon a cross in perfect, glorious righteousness. And you now offer that to all who would receive. And Father, that we are defined by you and your righteousness, not by our actions. Father, would you call us sweetly to yourself that we would be reminded that your gospel is marvelous. That in it we find hope and satisfaction because of Jesus Christ. In your precious name we pray. Amen.